an exciting and inspiring future awaits you beyond the noise in your mind, beyond the guilt, doubt, fear, shame, insecurity, and heaviness of the past you carry around. Debbie Ford Trigger warnings for today's podcast include some words such as vomit, throw up, or was sick. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. This is episode 32 of Emetophobia Help. I'm Anna Christie from Vancouver, Canada, recovered emetophobic, licensed psychotherapist, specializing in emetophobia, and your host for this podcast. Today, my guest is Kelly Reisman from Joliet, Illinois. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Anna. Good to see you. I see you online all the time, helping out other emetophobics. So it's so great that you're here with me um, on this podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Any help I can offer? Yeah. Well, let's start like I usually do with uh, having you tell a bit of your story with emetophobia and kind of how it started and what childhood was generally like for you. Well, my phobia started at age nine. Um, I, we were, my family and when I was driving home from the racetrack um, where my dad raced and my brother got sick in the car. Um, and I remember the day after that, I was very worried and asking my mother repeatedly whether I would get sick. Um, that's when it first started. And then I had my first panic attack at age 11. Wow. And, and what was that like? Where were you? What happened? Um, that was terrifying. Again, it was with my brother. Um, my father was dropping my brother and I off at school. My brother had been sick the night before, and he said he felt ill again. Um, so we were in a Suburban, and I crawled backwards all the way over three rows of seats to the very back of the Suburban to try and hide. Um, oh, gosh. Yes. Um, finally, my dad got my brother and I out of the car to go to school. And then it was during the, uh, my morning classes where I had my first panic attack. Um, and what, what were, was going through your mind when, when that happened to you, 11 years old? Um, I was just terrified that I was going to get sick. Um, my main, mm-hmm. when, when my panic attacks reached their climax, my main symptom is nausea. So I was worried that I was going to get sick. And I, I thought that I actually had caught whatever my brother had had. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. Um, and then how, you know, what, what happened between 11 and, you know, when you went to, when you finally got help for this? Well, um, I didn't tell anyone about it until I was about 18 years old. Um, I kind of just suffered in silence. Um, I was having panic attacks all the time. I always felt like I was going to be sick. Um, I would sit up at night most nights um, with a bucket um, thinking that I was going to be sick. I realize now that it was almost always anxiety because I never was Mm -hmm. sick, but I thought I was. 
Um, at 18, I finally told my mother that I felt sick all the time. And she took me to a medical doctor, um, a gastroenterologist, and he ran a battery of tests and couldn't find anything wrong. Um, so he suggested that possibly it could be a mental issue. Um, and at the, some sometime around that that time, I got a computer and I looked up fear of vomiting, and I found out that mm-hmm. it had a name, and I wasn't alone. Hmm. Yeah, that's an amazing moment, isn't it? When you yes, when you look it up and go, what? I'm not the only person. Yeah, right. I yeah, remember absolutely. that. <laughs> I remember that day as well, because I grew up, of course, without the internet, you Mm -hmm. know, so I think just got kind of introduced to the internet in 1996, I believe. And it was about, um, yeah, about three or four years after that, around 2000, that, that there, there was a discussion forum for emetophobics online uh, it's still there. I still moderate it. Most people are on Facebook groups now, but um, yes. yeah, that was an. I remember it was the International Emetophobia Society. I was a member too. Oh, was that right? Yeah, yes. that's great. Yeah, that's that's kind of cool. Um, there's yeah, I still go over there. You know, every once in a while, uh, I still think it's actually a better setup than Facebook group. Because mm-hmm. you can see, you know, you can look and see all the uh, threads and who, you know, what the topics are. And you can kind of go and pick where on Facebook, it just either comes through your feed or it doesn't or right. well, it constantly comes through my feed because I'm always commenting so that it will come through my feed. If Because if you stop interacting, then it won't even come through your feed anymore. But um, right. yeah, well, but that's, you know, it's social media is are the platforms there i'm on um instagram as well and you know you there are several emetophobic like instagram accounts that are very interesting some of them are people with emetophobia and some of them are like this one this one young woman has a an instagram account and she tells you if movies have people with vomiting in them Mm -hmm. or not yeah, I forget exactly what it is, but that's kind of, it would have been helpful for me at one point in my life, put it that way, when I was afraid to go to the movies, because it seemed like there was always somebody sick in every movie at one point. But yeah, that would have really helped me at some point, too. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't need it anymore after the therapy I've had. But at, at one mm-hmm. point, that definitely would have been helpful. Yeah, well, so um and it's interesting that you say that, um, you know, you didn't know whether you had anxiety or not. Well, you were nauseous all the time, but you go to a GI doctor and he said that, it, you know, it was nothing physical. Um, but anxiety in, in a sense is physical, you know, you know what I mean, in a way, um, because it does cause nausea. Like it, yes. it's, it causes your stomach to stop digesting food. Yes. And that feels gross. Just we put it that way. Like yes. it's just, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. It, may, it makes you feel awful. And then of course that makes you more anxious. Right. So right. then, then 
your stomach still doesn't digest food because you, you know, so I meet so many people, either clients or people I talk to online that are just in this continuous loop of anxiety, nausea, anxiety, nausea. And no matter, it's like no matter how many days go by that they feel that way, that they don't vomit, it it's like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really help. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't um, solidify in your mind that, oh, I guess this is something that I'm not going to be sick after all. Right. That doesn't seem to happen. They're not able to establish that pattern or that, right. that lo- yeah. internalize that logic. Exactly. To see it. Yeah. Well, how about you tell us now um, about the help that you have gotten um, and when, when you started working on this phobia? Well, I've been working on it for a long time. Um, at age 18, um, I went to see a therapist um, he told me to get on um, an SSRI, which I did, um, which helped, um, I would say, probably by 75%. Um, he didn't suggest any other sessions or anything. He just wanted me on the medication. So I just took the medication and then didn't seek any other help until I was about 25. Um, at 25, I... Um, I was, um, I, I was out of law school. I was having situational depression because I was having trouble finding a job. So I went into therapy. Once I got a job, the situational depression disappeared and I was left with the phobia. So um, I ended up having a lot of interns as far as for my treatment um, because that's all I could afford at the time. So I kind Mm -hmm. of taught them how to do the exposure therapy and went through um, some exposure therapy with them. And then several years later, um, I I did therapy probably for about four years. And now I've been in counseling for about the last five years. Um, I have a lot of other issues going on as well as the emetophobia. Um, Mm -hmm. I just finished up about a four month round of um, intense exposure therapy. And Mm -hmm. currently I'm working on um, my intrusive thoughts. I have the intrusive thoughts um, a lot. They've decreased since I've started working on them, but I always have the intrusive thoughts of what if I vomit, I'm going to vomit. It's going to happen. And I've been working on accepting those thoughts and have noticed a decrease in them as I continue to just accept them instead of react to them. Right, right. Um, Well, you've touched upon some important points that I'll just quickly um, flesh out a little bit for our listeners. Um, You were, it was suggested to you, you go on an SSRI and those are, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, um, long word for anti-anxiety or antidepressant drugs. There are lots of them. There are different kinds, different dosages, and they help both depression and anxiety or either or. And you were saying that helped you like by about 75%, which is really great. I, I, um, I have a number of clients from like from time to time, I have clients that 
um, don't want to take any drugs. And I respect that decision. But I also feel for the suffering that they go through because of that decision of theirs, that sometimes it is a chemical thing in your brain and not just kind of wiring, if you will, to oversimplify it. And if it's chemical, man, is that ever hard to kind of get over on your own? Um, but yeah, and and so then you uh, did some exposure and then you did some uh, what you call intense exposure. So exposure response prevention is the um, uh, evidence-based proper treatment for emetophobia mm-hmm. and for other anxiety disorders as well. So that's great. Um, and you still suffer intrusive thoughts, which are always about vomiting. Is that correct? You're, that's correct. You don't have other, yeah, you don't have other intrusive thoughts. No, nope, um, just about vomiting. Intrusive thoughts are a symptom of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is almost always what we call comorbid with emetophobia, meaning they they come together. So if you get if you get emetophobia, you've probably got symptoms of OCD. With some people, they're very bad symptoms, and um, other people have them hardly at all. Um, but almost everybody has some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms when they have a metaphobia to the point that um, Dr. David Veal, who's a primary researcher on a metaphobia, he's a psychiatrist in England, and one of his last um, studies that he did concluded that perhaps a metaphobia is actually a subset of OCD. Um, and that because of that, we, we might be able to look at it and treat it just a little bit differently. OCD treatment is the same, exposure and response prevention, same thing. Um, But with intrusive thoughts, that's not something that is about exposure, is it? I mean, that's that's something that you've just, you're living with kind of all the time. That's correct. And I mean, thoughts will float in my head for, for no reason whatsoever. Um, It's not, it's not necessarily triggered by anything. Um, They they just show up. Right. That's annoying. Um, Yes, it is. I I can't, I, I, I can't imagine. I do have some OCD symptoms as well, but they're not intrusive thoughts. So I really do feel for you. I've had, you know, how every once in a while we all get intrusive thoughts about something that, you know, maybe somebody got mad at you or they, you know, they told you off and you, and you just can't stop thinking about it. You just can't let it go. You can't, you know, um, or whatever anyway. And that that's so minor compared to what you're talking about. But the correct treatment for that, I think you are describing, um, is something we call ACT, which is... Um, um remind me now acceptance there it is commitment therapy <laughs> and commitment therapy yes and um this has been you know some therapists think that they can use a act they don't like to call it act but act to treat emetophobia like from the very beginning um but most of us treating it believe you really do have to do exposure as part of it and that if if you get instantaneous panic, so if you go from zero to out of 10 to 10 out of 10 instantaneously, you can't really use the principles of ACT because 
the first one is notice your anxiety. <laughs> well, if you're already right. freaking out, 10 out of 10, that's a ridiculous thing. But if at, lo- at lower levels, it really is better to, as you say, accept these thoughts, these feelings that come, the what they call personal experiences or the body sensations that come with it, perhaps anxiety, five, six out of 10, something like that. Um, or just, hey, what if I'm sick? I think I'm sick. You know, just let those, just let those thoughts just be there. And um, as you were just saying, I believe, over time, they won't bother showing up as much. Is that right? Is that what you found? Yes, I've noticed a decrease. Um, they are they are not completely gone, um, but I have mm-hmm. definitely noticed a decrease um, when I just accept them and move on. Um, rather than mm-hmm. reacting to them with fear or with some kind of safety behavior. Right. Yes. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, because if you think, oh, if today's the day that I'm going to um, vomit, then I need to take some Zofran or some, you know, something like that uh, as a safety behavior. Or it might be something as simple as ginger tea or drinking water and all kinds of safety behaviors, then that doesn't really help you. It helps you in the moment, but then the phobia is still, the thought's going to come back anyway, and that's a real waste of time. So it is better to accept and not to do anything and just leave it alone. And yeah, it raises your anxiety a bit and then it comes down. Yeah. Yes. Eventually. Yes. Eventually. Yeah. And um, eventually you'll stop. Yeah. The the thoughts will not show up as often. Did they give you the um, metaphor? I think I even talked about it last week on the podcast of the the jerk that shows up at your party that you don't want there. Um, No, not that one. But they gave me one um, of uh, me driving a bus with a bunch mm-hmm. of unruly kids in the back and there's okay. like a plexiglass between myself and all the students on the bus and all mm-hmm. the students mm-hmm. on the bus are the, what if I vomit, I'm going to vomit, I'm going to get sick. Right. Butts. And right. I just still keep driving the bus no matter what they're yeah. doing. That's right. That's a good one too. Yeah. Act has some great metaphors um, for 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 like I said, anxiety at I believe um, about six and below seven is dodgy. If your anxiety goes immediately to eight, nine, or ten, you won't even be able to think straight, let alone whether you're on a bus, you're not on a bus, you right? Know, but um, <laughs> is there a guy at a party on a bus? I don't know, but yeah, you won't really be able to think. Uh, you may have to actually do some things to bring your anxiety down at least to a level where then you can ignore it. Right. Right. And And carry on your life. If mine gets that high, um, I've gotten to the point where I automatically start doing what, um, what's called straw breathing. Um, And straw breathing is where you inhale and then you do a long exhale, like you're breathing, exhaling through a straw. And, and that type of breathing has been very helpful for me during panic attacks and, and stopping yeah. panic attacks or preventing them. Yeah. Yeah. And a panic attack, I would call like a 
you know, eight, nine or 10 or definitely 10 out of 10, which I refer to as the worst panic possible. And so there's no 11. <laughs> it's like, this right. is as bad as it gets. And yeah, your breath is your salvation in those, um, in those times. Uh, because as you, your, our heart and lungs are attached to each other. As you slow your breath down like that, it slows your heart down. And then your brain goes, oh, okay, maybe I need to calm everything down because she's not running away from whatever it is, you know, she's still here and, and uh, breathing slowly. So, yeah, well, you're, you're a great example um, and uh, an inspiration to, everyone who's listening and um as i said and people online as well i wanted to ask you um one thing just for us to chat about that you said earlier on that you didn't tell anyone until you're 18 years old about your phobia and this is very common um i mean i i work with lots of kids whose parents you know they tell their parents um and lots of people who have told their inner circle, but um, I never did. And a bunch of people never did. Can you say a bit more about why you kept it so secret for so long? Um, I think one of the things was shame. I felt ashamed of it. Um, I wanted to be, I'm I'm a perfectionist, so I wanted to be perfect. Um, when I was first experiencing the panic attacks at age like 11 or 12, I thought it was normal and that everyone experienced that. And that was just the way it was. Um, once I got a little older, I started to realize something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. And then I started to Mm -hmm. worry that I was crazy. And I started to worry that if I told anyone what was wrong with me, that they would lock me up somewhere. So right. I, I had that fear going on. So between that yeah. and shame, I didn't tell anyone. Right. I, I guess that's exactly how it was with me. Although I don't think I could have articulated it like that. I just had this, um, I wanted to tell my mother sometimes, but I was just, I would just clam up and, and not be able to spit it out to say, this is it. This is what I'm scared of. Because when you're metaphobic, there are so many things that you won't do. And regular folks don't know how that would relate to vomiting. Right, so, you right. know, they, it's like, I remember we went from my small town in Ontario to the city of Toronto to see my sister, who is 12 years older than I am. And um, she and her husband wanted to take me downtown Toronto to the Santa Claus parade because they thought that would be really cool. And we were going to go on the subway. And I was only about, I don't know how, about 11, I guess, 11 or 12. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't want to go on a subway because what if someone gets sick on that subway and then you're stuck there and you can't get off? Um and so I was just like, no, I don't want to go to the Santa Claus parade. And my mom and my sister were like, why? Why would you not want to go? <laughs> they couldn't, and I couldn't tell them why. I couldn't say because I never told anybody about the phobia. So I'm, I'm sure. I mean, my mother told me many years later. She's like, I could never understand. You were afraid of all kinds of things. She said, and I like, no, mom. Honestly, I was only afraid of the one thing. Oh no, right. you're afraid to go to the Santa Claus parade. I'm like. 
no, I'm not afraid of parades. (laughs) Right. You just, you know, you just don't get it. So, um, yeah. The the problem with the metaphobia is that it branches out. It branches out into so many different other facets of your life. Right. It does. And people cannot even imagine, Um, you know, it affects everything from relationships, eating, school, work, having children, raising children, like, um, it's a very serious phobia. It's not just some simple little thing that people can just get over if they try. Um, It really does, you know, but um, I I think for for folks who are listening that um, have not told anyone you know, there, there is no shame to this particular mental illness. Now, you may have relatives or friends that don't understand um, mental illness, and they may laugh or belittle you or something. And then in that case, I can understand why you wouldn't tell them. But for the most part, you know, people are getting much more informed about mental illness. And, um, but emetophobia is so common. And like you never see it on uh, a plot on Grey's Anatomy or anything like that, you right. know, like there all, all sorts of things, um, you know, hoarding disorder, the hoarding's got its own show now. And, you know, all kinds of mental disorders are, are interwoven into pop culture, but this one is just really, there are some other phobias that are really kept in the closet as well. Um, and they have to do with, you know, bodily functions and things like that, that people are so ashamed. Um, and so the more we can get the word out, the more people will feel, you know, solidarity. Um, are you on more than one Facebook group or just the one? Um, I'm only on just just the one. And I can't. Is it the one that has a blue flower at the top? I think it's got like. Um, no, it's got um, the slogan, you are not alone and a picture of a bunch of different people. That one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There are several Facebook groups. Um, and, um, and, and I, I usually, I've joined all of them. I think I like to kind of look around and see, but um, whatever the one is that you are not alone. Um, Kelly will be there <laughs> off and on and um, <clears throat> excuse me I will too as much as I can I want to thank you for um, coming and sharing your story today Kelly you are an incredible woman and they're, they're uh, just the way that you talk to other people um, you're just incredibly support- supportive and helpful as well as inspirational so thank you very much for being with me Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for saying those kind words. I appreciate it. Thanks to all of you as well who are listening and subscribing. Uh, The podcast is getting lots of downloads, which is just amazing. There are costs involved with producing this podcast. So if you'd like to help, just scroll down in the notes to where it says support the show and you can buy me a coffee. Just click on that. I also encourage folks to go to my website at emetophobiahelp.org. It has a lot of information both for emetophobics and for therapists who are treating this phobia. Meantime, I will see you back next week. Wear a mask, stay safe, social distance by two meters, wash your hands for 20 seconds, and get vaccinated as soon as you can.